Does anyone happen to know what significant sporting event is going to take place this Wednesday evening in Nashville? Does anybody know? Don't Google it. it has to do the, who, who said it? The draft. Who said it? Rob Newman. Hey, yes. Thank you. You're my favorite now. Yes. This, this Wednesday evening will be the NHL draft. And my Chicago Blackhawks won the lottery, the draft lottery. And, oh, stop it. And they're going to get... They're going to get to the first pick, and everyone in Chicago, all Chicago fans are excited because the phenom Connor Bedard is about to become a Chicago Blackhawks, and here come the Blackhawks. Yeah, stop it. Again, can't wait. Now, to, to no one's surprise here, as is evidenced by Rob's answer, I love hockey. I love the game of hockey very, very much. Yet as much as I love hockey, Pierre Paul Thomas this gentleman, he loved it even more. You see, Thomas, he grew up in Montreal, Canada in the 1940s during the heyday of the Montreal Canadiens. He absolutely loved the game of hockey. However, Thomas was unable to play. He couldn't play hockey with any of his brothers. And you know why he couldn't play? Thomas couldn't play because he was born blind. And he was born blind long before there was a cure available for the condition he had. So as you can imagine, growing up in Montreal, Canada in the 1940s, your brothers all play hockey, you love hockey, but not being able to play himself, it broke his heart. Well, as a blind man, Thomas, he would walk around with a white cane in order to avoid obstacles in front of him. Yet one day, when he was 66 years old, he tripped and he fell down a flight of stairs in his apartment, greatly injuring and damaging his face. He was then rushed to the hospital with severe swelling around his eyes. A team of doctors immediately went to work to repair the bones. Thankfully, he was okay. Well, a couple months after that, he then went and consulted a plastic surgeon about repairing other parts of his scalp. And, and during the appointment that he's having with the plastic surgeon, the surgeon just casually asked Thomas this question. In the middle of the consult, the, the surgeon says, hey, while we're, we're, we're fixing uh, your, your scalp, while we're, while we're in there, uh, do you want us to fix your eyes, you know, so you can see? Thomas didn't know how to respond. He didn't understand. He was shocked. Yet when he finally understood that through a simple procedure, he could finally see for the very first time, guess what he said? <laughs> I'm actually leading you to the correct answer here. Guess what he said? Yes. He said yes. <laughs> look at you guys, look at you guys. You know me, don't you? You know. He said yes, which all of us would say, right? And the, and the following week, 
Thomas had the surgery, and for, and for the first time in his life, as a 66-year-old man, he could see. Now, can you imagine? Suddenly, his world consisted of bright colors he had never fathomed before. For the first time, he could not only see others in the world around him, but you know what else he could see for the very first time? Himself. <laughs> for the very first time, listen, with a simple procedure, Thomas could see. Now, uh, this is a, a truly, it's a remarkable and it's a beautiful story, is it not? A 66-year-old man now being able to see for the very first time. But, but you know what? There is a sad reality to the story as well. And you know why that is? It's because Thomas, he actually could have had the same surgery at a much younger age. But here's the thing. He didn't. And you know Why? Because in his own words, Thomas said that he had just resigned himself to living blind. He thought, you know what? Me being blind, this is just the way it is and the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. What hope is there? What possibility of change? He just resigned himself to say, you know, this is the way it is and I'm just going to try to deal with it. And you know what, Faith? Thomas is not alone. Although the circumstances of your life might be very different from Thomas's, nonetheless, I think all of us, on some level, we can be tempted to do something very similar. What I mean is we can be tempted, like Thomas, to just resign ourselves to think, that our current way of life, our current struggles, our current difficulties, our current disappointments, it's just the way it's going to be. It is what it is. In fact, have you ever felt that way before? Have you, have you ever resigned yourself to believe that this is just the way it's always going to be, especially in regards to perhaps maybe your struggle with sin? I know I have. Which is precisely why we need our passage this morning. This morning we once again are going to be studying Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. And faith, I, I really believe this. It is not an overstatement to say that the truth in this text, if applied, it can bring real change in your life. Change that is on par with the blind man receiving sight for the very first time. And I believe I'm not overselling it. In fact, let me ask you, is there some area in your life that you've just thrown in the towel? 
Is there some sin or some area of struggle that you've just given up trying to overcome because you just think it's impossible? If so, I have some good news for you this morning. So please, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 6. That's page 979 in that paperback Bible. On the seat in front of you. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a, the, the context here. In Ephesians 6, Paul highlights several important themes that he has woven masterfully through this book. And arguably, one of the most significant themes he brings to our attention at the conclusion of his letter, especially in, in verses 10 through 20, is his reference to the heavenly places. The heavenly places. This is the realm in which our spiritual enemies reside and wage war against us. And I believe it will serve us well to consider what, has, what Paul has taught thus far about the heavenly realms. Consider how at the very beginning of this letter, the first, in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul taught us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. Then later on in chapter 1, we learn that God has raised Christ from the dead and seated and placed him in the highest authority in the heavenly places. And as we discussed a couple weeks ago, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, speak of how Christ has disarmed and put to open shame the rulers and demonic authorities in the heavenly places through his death. Right? God has blessed us in Christ in the heavenly places. God has raised Christ to the highest position of authority in the heavenly places. And then consider how in chapter 2, Paul teaches this, that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So Christian, through our union with Christ, by faith, we are seated with Christ in a position of authority and victory over these demonic rulers. Well, now here at the end of Ephesians, what does Paul command us to do, especially when it comes to the devil and demonic forces? Paul teaches this truth, and that is, we are to stand firm in the Lord's strength. We, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we who are children of God through union with Christ, our call is to stand firm in the Lord's strength. This, I want to argue, is the main syntactical governing idea of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Okay? Now, so here's the million-dollar question. Stand firm in the Lord's strength. Great. How? How can you stand firm in the Lord's strength? Better stated, how can you, Christian, be strengthened by the Lord? Because you know what? Many of you are weary. Aren't you? In fact, like Thomas and his blindness, some of you might have already started to resign yourself to thinking, it's never going to change. 
Is that true of you? If so, friend, be of good cheer, for in this passage, God offers you His strength to resist the devil and his schemes. God, in His kindness, gives us His strength, a strength outside of us to prevail. So how do you get this strength? Well, I believe Paul tells us, as we looked a couple weeks ago, the first thing we must do is we first be aware of our adversary, right? This is how Paul begins this section. We must know that our defeated foe and his minions are active in attacking God's enemy. We must be aware of this. But then second, and most importantly, we get the Lord's strength for us who are weary, for us who are discouraged, for us who are downtrodden. We get the Lord's strength by putting on His armor. I want to suggest Paul makes this very clear and connects the dots for us in verses 11 and 13. This is how we appropriate the Lord's strength. Last week, we looked at the first three pieces of God's armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of gospel peace. This week, we're going to look at the final three. So follow along with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians. I'm going to start back in 10, down to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, Paul, how? Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the where? Heavenly places. So how do we stand? Verse 13, therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And now here's where we're going to camp out this morning, these two verses. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Amen and amen. This is God's good Word.
when uh, Tim Keller was a young minister, uh, two women in his church became seriously ill. And these women had a lot in common. Both were very, very young. They were in their early 20s. And due to their illness, they both underwent expensive treatment and surgery. Well, as a result of their treatment, both women gained a significant amount of weight. They gained a lot of weight. And you know what? There was nothing they could do to lose it. Both experienced the same troubling circumstance. But you know what? They responded in radically different ways. One of them was concerned about the extra weight. The other was devastated. One of them had joy. The other one spiraled down into despair. Same exact situation, same exact circumstance, yet two radically different results. One of them remained firm in her faith and grew. The other faltered and she became bitter. And you know what, Faith? Their story isn't unique. We actually see this all the time. Two people experience the same hardship or the same blessing, yet they respond in two completely different ways. And you know why that is? Please hear me. It's because it is never the actual event that brings a person to ruin. No, you know what does? It's what they tell themselves about that event that makes or breaks them. Notice, what does Paul write about the shield of faith in verse 16? What does he command us to do? When should we take it up? What does he say? Go ahead and, and look there if you'd like to. In verse 16, say it again. In all circumstances, we are to take up the shield of faith. You know what that means, friends? It means like an American Express card, don't leave home without it. In each and every situation, whether you're getting a job promotion or you're experiencing excessive weight gain and there's nothing you can do about it, you are to take up the shield of faith. And you know why? Because it is precisely in those moments, please hear me, of pain or pleasure that the evil one shoots his flaming arrows of deceit and lies. Lies like, God's not good to let you gain so much weight. Lies like, you know what? The praise of man is far more satisfying than God himself. Lies like, look at me and all this weight I've gained. God has abandoned me. Look at me in this cancer. God has abandoned me. Lies like, you know what? Yeah, I deserve all the blessings I'm receiving right now at my job. 
Faith, please hear me. Prosperity, bankruptcy, being famous, terminal cancer, having someone slander you, those things can't destroy you. But you know what can destroy you? The lies of the devil that accompany those things if you believe them. You see, the devil, the, the devil, he wants to deceive you about your circumstances, God, others, and yourself. And the way we extinguish his fiery arrows is with the shield of faith. That is, we believe and we trust what God has said in his word more than our feelings or what the devil shoots at us. John Calvin is arguably at his best here. In a sermon on this passage, Calvin writes this about God. He says, seeing that he, God, has given us his promise that he will always be on our side, that he is greater than all the world, and that he has put us in good and safekeeping by ordaining our Lord Jesus Christ to be our shepherd. Let us gather all these promises together and make a shield of them to set before us at all times and whenever we are assailed. You see, Christian, placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, that is just the first step in a lifelong journey of placing your trust in the promises of God. That is believing by faith that God's word is true, not my feelings or the lies of the evil one, even though those might feel true in the moment. I mean, think of how the shield of faith helps the Christian stand firm against sexual temptation. When you're all alone with your phone and no one else is around and Satan sends his fiery dart your way trying to convince you that viewing pornography will give you the greatest pleasure. Faith, it's precisely in those moments that we must believe by faith what the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, namely, that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures evermore, not in sexual sin. Amen? Or think about anger. When someone sins against you and Satan shoots his fiery at, arrow at you. Arrows that say, <laughs> arrows that say like Emperor Palpatine, give in to your rage. Right? And return evil for evil. In that moment, you must take up the shield of faith and believe what God says in Romans 12, 19, where God says, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
right? So whether my enemy is destroyed in hell because of his sin or his sin is destroyed on the cross of Christ because he repents and believes, I'm going to leave it to God. That's taking up the shield of faith. Now, we need to linger just a little bit longer here in this topic and talking about anger. You know why? Because as Paul told us earlier in chapter 4, verse 27, it's through our sinful anger that the devil can get a what in our lives? A foothold. That is, when we give way to sinful anger, you know what that means? It means Satan's arrows, they land on our hearts. Faith, please hear me. Sinful anger is the petri dish that allows the lies of Satan to grow in your heart. Do you know this? In fact, can I ask, are you an angry man or woman? Here's a better question. What are you angry about? When you look back and see all the times you get angry and have got angry this past week, are you angry because God's law is dishonored or because you can't get your way? Is it not true that most often our anger is motivated by the kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God? That is, our hearts are treasuring our wants, wishes, and desires more than God. And when someone or something threatens our kingdom, we get angry? I mean, let's just be honest with one another. Is this not why you get angry in the car? Is this not why you get angry when your kids prevent you from leaving on time? Is this not why you yell at the TV when your team loses? It's the kingdom of self. You see, anger has everything to do with your heart and what you are treasuring. And faith, Christian, be warned. Self-centered, sinful anger allows the devil to get a foothold. And that opens you up to believe all sorts of lies from the evil one. Oh my goodness. How many people make regretful decisions in their moment of rage? This is in part because when they're giving way to sinful anger, they're believing all sorts of lies from the evil one. So we must take up the shield of faith in in all circumstances. We must speak the truth of God's word to our hearts about God, our circumstances, ourselves, and others. But then fifth, I want you to see, as we work our way through the armor of God, we must also take up the helmet of salvation. Look again at verse 17. I'll go back to 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Comedian Jerry Seinfeld has a bit 
about how there are many things you can point to as proof that human beings are not smart. Perhaps you've, maybe you've seen this bit before. Seinfeld says his personal favorite uh, is the invention of the helmet. Maybe you've heard this before. As Seinfeld says, apparently, we humans, we're involved in activities that were cracking open our heads. Yet instead of choosing to avoid these activities, we decided to come up with some sort of device to help us enjoy our head-cracking lifestyles. Seinfeld goes on to say that, however, that wasn't enough because people still refused to wear helmets. So what did we do? We came up with helmet laws. And why did we come up with helmet laws? We did so in order to preserve a brain whose judgment is so poor, it does not even try to avoid the cracking of the head it's in. Now, in a funny and whimsical way, Seinfeld makes the argument that helmets are proof that humans aren't smart. But you know what? God's word would offer a different perspective, doesn't it? Indeed, God's word says that Christians who wear a certain type of helmet are not dumb but wise. And it's not a bike or skydiving helmet. No, it's the helmet of salvation. Uh, in this passage, Paul borrows the beautiful words of Isaiah 59, 17. As I've mentioned before, I think a few weeks ago, I believe, as, as Paul is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe Paul is thinking more about the Old Testament descriptions of God than he is a Roman soldier. Because in Isaiah 59, 17, God, we see he dons the, the breastplate of righteousness. He positions on his brow the helmet of salvation. And then he goes on to defeat his enemies and save his people as the resplendent divine warrior. But here I want to suggest Paul changes the image. In Isaiah, God's helmet of salvation is what God does. And here in Ephesians, it's what God gives. And what does God give through the helmet of salvation? I want to suggest to you hope. Because listen to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10, where he uses the same language. Paul writes, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So the focus with the helmet of salvation is that as Christians, listen, we do not have to fear future judgment. Amen? We put our hope in that. We place our hope in the fact that Christ has done all the work necessary to save us from the wrath. We are rightfully owed for our sin so that through faith in Christ, we can live with God forever. Amen? In his short little exposition on 
Ephesians 6, 14 through 17, pastor and biblical scholar Ian Duguid writes this about the helmet of salvation. I think he, I think he captures the, the message of hope that it's trying to communicate. He says, helmets provide the soldier with protection against bullets and blows. In a similar way, the hope of salvation provides a real protection from the, for the Christian in times of difficulty or distress. It defends the Christian against discouragement and despair. Why should you be discouraged by your present challenging circumstances when you have such a glorious and secure inheritance awaiting you? This is why Paul writes elsewhere about this light momentary affliction. The only reason Paul can say light momentary affliction of whatever hardship you're going through is because of what is so great in store for the Christian for a gazillion, bazillion years. So as we sing, right? So Christian, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. What hope? Christian, where is your hope? Oh. Don't embrace the arrow of the evil one to hope in better circumstances. Don't embrace the arrow to hope in relief. Embrace the counsel of God's word and hope in redemption. That God is using this hardship to make you more like Christ and that you will be healed and forever restored with your God for all eternity. Fix your hope on that. But then lastly, we must take up the sword of the Spirit. Look at how verse 17 ends. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As several commentators have correctly pointed out, this is the only piece of equipment that is an offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's the Bible, the place where God speaks to us uniquely, authoritatively, and decisively. To, Christian, please hear me. To stand firm in the Lord's strength, you who are weary, to stand firm in the Lord's strength, we must know, understand, believe, and apply God's word to our lives. What a treasure we have in this. Uh, several years ago, I took my family to the History Museum here in Louisville. Uh, and at the time, they were having a traveling exhibit of ancient swords and uh, warfare artifacts. And some, some of the swords we saw that day weighed more than me. 
And I have to tell you why, why many of the swords were really impressive and they were really cool looking. The truth is, they are all practically useless in modern warfare. Right? No one today is going to give some soldier in modern warfare today one of these swords, right? Well, sadly, this can be many people's opinion of the Bible. Many people admire the Bible and may put the Bible on display in their homes, maybe a big like family Bible on the coffee table. But oftentimes, those same people never use it. And why? Because they deem it like an ancient sword. It's useless for the battles I'm facing today in 2023. This is irrelevant. This is outdated. Oh, friend, I would, I would push back in love against that. I would encourage you to consider how the sword of the Spirit was used in the hands of the Master Jesus himself in Matthew 4. During the duel between Christ and Satan, there in the wilderness, when Satan tempted Christ three times, Christ fought back each of those three temptations with quotations from Scripture. And may the lesson not be wasted. If Christ, the divine man, in battling Satan while here on earth, did so with the sword of the word, how much more do we frail men and women need to wield that same sword if we are to be victorious and stand firm? Christian, do you want to be strengthened in the Lord? Strengthened by the Lord? Then give attention to this book. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. And as we learned last week, do what it says. <laughs> be a doer of the word. Indeed, you know what my prayer is for us as a church as I was preparing this week? Let us be like Eleazar one of David's mighty men. Do you remember what we learned about him in 2 Samuel 23? Listen to how he is described. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. So these men withdrew, and what does he do? He rose up and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to his sword. Listen, Eleazar, in faithfulness to God's king at that time, David, he fought till his sword cleaved to his hand. They were joined together as if the sword grew out of his arm. Oh, would that be true of us with God's word? And faithless to God's true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, may we wield the sword of the spirit, the word of God, so much so that it cleaves to our hand. As John Calvin has correctly pointed out, it's when we know the truth of God's word that we can more effectively take up the shield of faith and as well grow our hope in God's salvation. Faith, let us never resign ourselves 
to a stagnant spiritual life. No, let us avail ourselves of the Lord's strength by putting on His armor, the whole armor of God. Amen? Let's pray.